Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 631, Wild Card Weekend Preview. Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. Frank, joins us with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, I mean, as I was telling you, sick. But aside from that, things are going pretty well. Obviously, been an eventful 24, 48 hours in the world of sport. So yeah. maybe that's the thing that's wearing me down. Maybe. I have to say, this morning, I might have seen the a future generation Edward Hewitt in the making. So... <laughs> Indulge Do you want me. Guess? <laughs> no, I don't know which aspect of my personality you're about to make fun of, but let's let me. <laughs> Maybe you'll get it after this. So I walked into Dunkin' Donuts this morning <laughs> oh, <Christ. laughs> to pick up some breakfast, and as I walked in, there was a table of three children and what I think was their grandmother, uh, and the t- there was two older kids and one kid who looked about three-ish, three or four, let's say, and. I am ordering and I hear this little kid kind of screaming from the table, like, ah, like kind of like a scream laugh, like really genuinely happy, like greatest moment of his life yell. And he does it like two or three times. So everyone kind of like is looking over at, at this table and the grandmother goes, I'm really sorry, but he is just so excited. This is the first time he's ever been here. My his mother's gonna kill me. So I look over at this kid and I swear to God, I'm not kidding you, Eddie. He's got three plain glazed donuts in front of him, just all like half eaten, half bitten, and a monster cup of orange juice that he's drinking. <laughs> that is Edward Hewitt 2.0, glazed donuts and OJ. <laughs> I will say, I, I don't know how old I was when I had my first donut, but I mean, I guess I was significantly older than that, though. But again, I mean, we're... <laughs> I. <laughs> I don't know how my reputation for donuts has really built itself. I haven't had a donut since I was with you, but I don't know if you did see, speaking of donuts, as a topic I wanted to bring up, that they've opened a Krispy Kreme in Paris. And I the lines. No, not on the. Oh, maybe not. And the lines, the lines for the Krispy Kreme for the first few days were up to seven hours long. <laughs> Who on earth? is waiting for a Krispy Kreme donut for seven hours. That's insane. A seven-minute wait would be too long for me to get a Krispy Kreme donut. And that's one of the things about Krispy Kreme is like you just drive right up through the drive-thru, boom, dozen donuts, goodbye, nice and fresh. (laughs) People were turning up there at like four or five in the morning to get a donut. Now here's my question. Krispy Kreme, also their other big thing here is that they're notoriously cheap, right? You can get like a dozen donuts for like $3 or whatever. What are they like five dollars at five euros a donut there? <laughs> it's a good question. I've not been, so I can't I can't really say. Let's see if they have checking their website quickly. Okay, how much do you think an original glazed donut at Krispy Kreme France costs? Three euros. Two fifty. So that's oh, not that's terrible. My first guess. Damn it. <laughs> it's not awful, but I mean it's no, it's, it's not certainly terrible. not and then for like this more special like special donuts, you're going up to three eighty. That's like their most expensive. So 
yeah, three to four and a half dollars a donut, which not ta- it's not it's not bad, but it's also you wouldn't call it cheap. But and it, it is the interesting part, right? For people to then wait in line for all that time when you could go to a boulangerie and get a really nice, fresh something, you know, a pan au chocolat or a croissant or whatever for less than two euros, you know, anywhere from like a euro to two euros. So that's the one bit that makes it even more baffling, really. But French people, as we know, they love a line and they love like new things. Whenever a fast food chain or a restaurant pops up here, they are packed for days. <laughs> so I guess, you know, Tucson, it's $2.15 for an original glaze or 16 for a dozen. So you're getting a much better value if you get a dozen. They're only like $1.20 if you get a dozen. Yeah, a dozen of original glaze here is nineteen ninety. That's not too eyes. bad then. So yeah, it's not. Maybe it's that's marked why they're up, up, Eddie. It's the, it's the bargain <laughs> of Paris. Maybe. Enough calories in nineteen euros yeah. for the whole day. We'll see. I mean, I'm not desperate to try out Krispy Kreme. They already have a pretty significant presence in Europe, anyway. So it's not like it's one of those like American fast food yeah. chains moving over where, like, you can go to London and get Krispy Kreme all over the place, but. I feel like uh, there are your types of donuts, though, where they're like very simple and plain. Like it's either original glaze or just like original cream stuffed on a glaze. Like those are the two biggest sellers. Nothing, no frills in their donuts. You mean no hipster donuts? That's the, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. I, Nothing I, I like try to and make it better or elevate it. <laughs> just no, it's the opposite, actually. It's, plain Jane no. Eddie. <laughs> See, that's your negative spin on it. My positive spin on it is I'm expecting the very basic ingredient ingredients to do all the heavy lifting, right? Like the donut then at that point speaks for itself. Like anyone can cover a donut in a bunch of shit and you can eat it and go, well, that was interesting. But <laughs> if you're going to serve me a glazed donut and I'm going to really enjoy it, then you had, you had to do something really well. <laughs> yeah. Put butter and sugar in it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Instead of doing that, then smothering it in Nutella and, you know, yeah. Injecting it with some whipped cream. Yeah, it's, I, I prefer, I take a lot of pleasure in simplicity. You know, I like, it's just, I'm one of those, I'm a simple man. I can find joy in my day-to-day existence. It's one of those <laughs> things people always say about me. Yeah. And there we go. I've got Eddie to talk about donuts for five minutes already. <laughs> <laughs> we should, yeah, we'll have our spinoff donut podcast where I don't eat donuts you do, and then you make fun of me for eating, for eating donuts. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that one. Maybe that's what we do. Instead of the hot wings challenge, we get celebrities and make them eat donuts until they throw up. <laughs> How many donuts can you eat till you vomit on screen? <laughs> All right. So, obviously, a number of really important sporting events for us to cover before we get on to our NFL wildcard weekend previews which we obviously uh, promised to do in our last episode but before we get there probably some nfl news worth covering first the biggest story being bill belichick who was well is no longer the head coach of the new england patriots supposedly by mutual agreement mutual um, several days worth of meetings where they both took the high road is what i read (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I like but, but someone being, that, but ultimately one of them had to take the higher road. So who took the highest of the roads? <laughs> I guess maybe Belichick because I mean, maybe the thing we don't know, right. Is maybe they've, maybe the Patriots agreed to pay him off, but say, let's call this mutual so yeah. that we they could classy. have traded him. He had one yeah. year left on his contract. He could have been traded. But that would have been out of line or inconsistent with what they did with Tom Brady, right? Where they could have done the same thing with Brady. They could have franchise tagged him before he went to the Buccaneers. And that backfired. But they, yeah, <laughs> so but they felt you think like they'd learn from their lesson. <laughs> they felt like he deserved the ability to make a decision entirely for himself based on the what he'd done for the for the team. And obviously with Belichick, they probably feel the same way that you know, let him go, and then he's got the got the ability to move wherever he wants. There's obviously a number of high-profile jobs available. It's a good time to be an unemployed NFL coach and a good time to be an NFL team looking for a head coach. But I guess worth discussing the Belichick Patriots era and dynasty. Where do you think this lands then on the now that it's all said and done on the Brady versus Belichick, who was more important to the Patriots dynasty? I mean, it's, this is where it's a little unfair for Belichick because as someone who loves analytics, the statistics don't lie with Tom Brady. He's 249 and 75 with six Super Bowls. So a seven, a 0.769 winning percentage. Without Tom Brady, he's 84 and 103 with a 0.449 winning percentage and zero Super Bowls. Now, and, and if you dig a little deeper into those statistics, because if you take the Matt Castle season out of the equation, which was a winning season, with, he was 11 and five. Had, yeah, and somehow missed the playoffs. If you take, but fundamentally still had a very good Patriots team in place aside from Tom Brady getting injured in the opening game of the season. If you take that out, then it starts to look even worse. I guess that Matt, how you interpret that Matt Castle season actually is kind of important because if you're a Belichick defender, you would say that's a sign that when he is has the roster built that he wants and has time for those players to get used to his system and feels like he has sort of strength all over the field, he can be good with pretty much any quarterback. The reverse is the reverse is that. with Cam Newton, who was an MVP. He went seven and eight with Drew Bledsoe, who was a above average quarterback. He went five and thirteen with Jimmy Garoppolo. He went two and zero, oh, so maybe that's the other way. <laughs> but uh, Vinny Testaverde, he went seventeen and sixteen. Who you know most people would say above average quarterback. Bernie Kosar eleven and eighteen, um, and then Matt Castle is that anomaly at ten and five. So yeah, it, it's it's tough, but at the same time. I still think I'm a little sympathetic that those statistics aren't exactly fair because I think it is still – you still need a, a good QB. And you know, maybe, maybe the Bledsoe stats are – kind of show a little bit because I would consider Bledsoe an above-average quarterback. Like in today's NFL, he's in the top 15. So to be – to have that bad of a record with Bledsoe, it's a little indicative of maybe maybe Brady did play a pretty large role in his success. 
Like if you had told me, if you took out Bledsoe and you had said, you know, his best QB he had was Vinny Testaverde, who he had a, a slightly above 500 record, but on a bad Browns team, like they just weren't very that good. And then Cam Newton, who's kind of washed up at that point at seven and eight. Okay. You know, he's still a good coach, but that the Bledsoe kind of uh, gives me a little, little hesitation there. Maybe, I guess the, to, to flip it. Uh, because how keep many in mind, super- I just want to let that thought up. Just keep in mind that Bledsoe error was literally right at the back of Tom Brady. I mean, Tom Brady takes over for Bledsoe and then they instantly become a playoff team. Yeah. So flip it. Do you think they win? Say Drew Bledsoe doesn't have that injury. And then I guess there is a scenario where Tom Brady never really gets his chance. Wow, what a what a world that would be! How do you think the Patriots would have won a Super Bowl in the Bledsoe Belichick era? I, I don't know. That's yeah. You know, that's the whole that's the whole point of this discussion. I I honestly don't know. It is, but at the same time, when you look at those early Super Bowls they won, Tom Brady definitely wasn't. You know, that was full on Tom Brady game manager era. Like to throw that criticism that gets leveled at quarterbacks so often. He wasn't the determining factor in the Patriots winning those first couple of Super Bowls, right? Now, he had some important drives and plays within those wins. You know, notably their first Super Bowl, right? They drove down the field to get into field goal position late in the game. So there's some early signs of the kind of Brady clutch factor in them. But still, it's not like... Well, his first playoff game, he goes for 312 and takes them back from a 10-point deficit in the fourth quarter. So I do agree with you. During the season, he was in a more game manager style, but I think he had always kind of had that gamer right. in the big games. Tell me tell me the rest of the stats for the, his that playoff run. Okay, so the first game, he was 32 of 52 for 312. Uh, no TDs and an interception. Wow, what a, that stat line reads a little bit differently once you you just threw out the yardage originally, and it didn't look quite so great once the rest of the statistics came into play. The second game, he gets hurt, so he only plays the first half, I think, if you even played that much. He was 12 for 18 for 115. It doesn't say how many snaps he took, but I know he got hurt. Um, and then the, the Super Bowl, he was 16 of 27 for 145 and a TD, no interceptions. Yeah, so I think that does kind of reinforce my point, right? And again, the statistics can be misleading. I know you're a big stats guy, big stats believer. But those aren't great stats. <laughs> they're not They're not like, wow, he put the team on his... Those are not Joe Flacco, Raven, Super Bowl statistics. You know, you wouldn't say without Tom Brady, they definitely would not have won that Super Bowl. There's probably a lot of quarterbacks who could have been in that system and won that first Super Bowl. So I think that's the tough thing is, in a sense, I'm going to flip the question to one key thing. I think Belichick would have won a Super Bowl without Tom Brady. The question becomes, would Tom Brady have won a Super Bowl without Bill Belichick? Didn't he? Yeah, but he did, but he gets <laughs> No, but that's it's not fair because it's after it's after nearly twenty years of development with arguably the greatest NFL coach of all time, and 
him getting too mature. You know, like it's easy to forget. I mean, so you're so you're to... saying so you're saying if if he's not playing in the Belichick system, exactly. Like say if he's he drafted, drafted by the Steelers. Yeah. Let's say he's Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, let's not choose the Steelers because they won multiple they Super Bowls. Good call <laughs> during that era. Let's say he gets drafted by the Chargers. Okay. Or even more to the point, he gets drafted by his hometown team, the San Francisco 49ers. Ooh. Do, do I think the 49ers win a Super Bowl in that era with Tom Brady? And I'm going to say I don't think they do. I don't know how you can figure that out. <laughs> well, we can't. I mean, that's just completely like, <laughs> no, you know complete... what, Eddie? I think they do. <laughs> well, there we go. Podcast over. <laughs> Guys, no, pro- prove us wrong, listeners. <laughs> Yeah, someone invent a time machine. You got to then, I mean, in the multiverse in which we live in, there's definitely one that exists in which this scenario happens. But I think that's an important, This the, the second point of would Brady have won a Super Bowl without Belichick is, is obviously impossible to answer. And you do have to lean heavily towards yes because of how great he turned out to be. But I think it's very difficult to say that Belichick would have not won a Super Bowl without Brady. And I do think that's a little bit important where now there's some rewriting of history going on in terms of how, you know, that Brady was the driving force behind the Patriots' success. He was obviously an integral part of it. But our perception of that Belichick-Brady era has changed significantly over the last two or three years. And I, I think saying that Belichick definitely would have won a Super Bowl without Brady which I feel confident in is at least one important thing when sort of weighing up that dynasty. Yeah. And um, I've seen in a few places that Brady, you know, to kind of paraphrasing has said that, you know, he fully believes that the reason they were successful was that both of them were there and like worked off each other and that they both had similar, like really strong worth at work ethics and that, that kind of contributed to it, that they were able to push each other in a sense um, to be better. I mean, he's not going to come out and say, I don't know. He also comes out and says avocado ice cream is the greatest thing on earth. So he says some dumb shit. (laughs) But He's not going to say we only won because of me. You know, he, he's, he's not that stupid, but yeah, I think uh, it's sad. I mean, I, I really feel like, you know, we, we've spoken about it with, so we can kind of then transition can cover some of the other NFL coaches who've also lost their jobs uh, since we last spoke. But the other big news too, obviously, was Nick Saban yeah. stepping down, retiring as Alabama head coach. Now that to and, me, see, now that is where like, I feel bad for Nick Saban because I think Nick Saban is a better college football coach when all is said and done than Belichick is a professional NFL coach. I mean, Nick Saban, his statistics are insane. And no matter where he was, the issue with Saban that he gets shot down for is that he sucked in the NFL. And that will slightly tarnish his reputation a little. But as a college coach, he could maybe be the greatest college coach ever. Maybe. I think it's easier to be consistently dominant in college than it is in the NFL, just because once you build a powerhouse in the way now his role in turning Alabama into such a powerhouse is important, right? But to, you know, your ability to just recruit 
five-star players every year for Alabama at times to have five-star quarterback recruits sitting on the bench. You know, like ultimately part of this discussion boils down to no matter how good of a coach you are, you do need the players capable of executing the plans and schemes that you come up with. But yeah, it's a, it's, that's an interesting discussion. I feel sorry for Saban because they were, they, they should have beaten Michigan from the position that they were in, right? In that semifinal. And I think they would have beaten Washington then in the championship game based on the performance that we then saw from Washington against Michigan. So he was in a position to sign off on a real high and probably in his mind, that's what he both hoped for and planned for. So it's a shame to have had such a great career and really be denied that sort of, you know, in the same way that it says it's a shame for Belichick that he signs off from his Patriots tenure with such a disappointing season and a loss to the Jets, you know, that he didn't even get to finish with a win. It's, you know, yeah. leaves a sour taste in your mouth. Yeah. Keep in mind, though, Saban also had a national championship with LSU. And in four years, turned that program from like a 500 program into a national championship. And then I think that's what kind of killed him is then he went to Miami. And and that was like he would, had that mediocre rise. I mean, although he was still a very good coach before LSU, but came to LSU, won a national championship, kind of was like, oh, my God, he's, you know, could be one of the best ever. And then went to Miami and kind of <laughs> ruined his reputation pretty badly. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing, right? Because all of these coaches are connected. Because we can then also bring Pete Carroll into the equation, who, uh, again, appearing, uh, seemingly has agreed to step down as head coach of the Seattle Seahawks yeah. by mutual agreement, although then in his press conference made it clear that it was not mutual agreement uh, and that he had really wanted to stay, although he may be staying with the Seahawks in some kind of front office position. So his time with the Seahawks might not be over. But that still remains to be uh, settled. But all of these coaches have worked together. You have these three, you know, huge figures within college and professional football over the last thirty years, and all of them have these connecting uh, experiences, which is kind of interesting. But I don't know which of the three leaving. I guess maybe Pete Carroll surprises me the most. I mean, they were so close to being a playoff team. They feels like they were kind of rebuilding pretty quickly into a fairly competitive team. So it's somewhat surprising to see them deciding that this is when they want to change, really shake things up. So Pete Carroll is 72. How old is Belichick again? 71. Yeah. And Saban? Ooh, I think it's about 70, the same. 72, 72. as well. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's it. Maybe they, they all were told 72 is the limit. <laughs> I mean, it is old to be an NFL head coach, right? There's no denying that fact. I mean, it's, yeah, it's and, old to have pretty much any job, but it's yeah. definitely old to have a job that requires incredibly like, long hours. Yeah, like 4 a.m. to like midnight. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's interesting too because I think I ha I honestly think part of the reason all of them are leaving or have some kind of want of not being there anymore is that the game has slightly changed 
from when they were in their prime of how it was kind of run and how it functioned. I think the most for Saban. Saban has been pretty outspoken about how he does not like NIL. Um, and not the fact that players aren't getting paid, but that what's become of college football now is, hey, like, come here, we'll give you $10 million for a year, and then you can go somewhere else. You know, like, he doesn't like that aspect of college football where there's not bring a player in, develop them over three or four years, get them ready for the NFL, which he was extremely successful at. Um, and I think Belichick, too, you know, he's his NFL was, I'm running things my way. I want to be involved with every player we bring in, every player we cut. And nowadays, there's so much more like the big word now is like collaboration amongst the owner and the GM and the coach that I don't think he likes. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's the the landscape has changed the most for Saban. Now, if you're cynical, right, you'd probably say that Alabama were offering players those kind of deals under the table for as long as Nick Saban's been there, <laughs> and maybe he's just annoyed that the the you know that things have leveled out and now people have to do it in, sort of transparently. But yeah, between the transfer portal and NIL deals. We're not accusing though. Alabama's never been accused of, no, of but, that. <laughs> right, but you know what I mean. It's the cha- cha- Would you bet your life that Alabama hasn't, you know, left some money for someone for a recruit at some point, or you know, had them get a car, or you know, whatever it is. And that, I'm not trying to tarnish his reputation as a coach because I think every, all of the big programs have done that. It's a little bit like the Lance Armstrong argument that he probably just did it better maybe more discreetly, more quietly, and anyway, was just a better coach. But uh, for Belichick, I think the biggest issue, and you see this in a lot of sports now, he's just, he's like an old school coach. And I think him handling young players nowadays has to be tough because people coming in with big egos, and especially now with NIL deals already, so they're coming in already millionaires, and you've got this coach who wants you to earn every little bit of respect you have directly with him, with a team that everyone's expected to put in the same level of effort. Everyone kind of gets treated like shit. You know, that's a little bit harder to do probably nowadays. And it was definitely easier to do for him when you had players like Brady also towing the line and setting setting an example for players themselves of like, this is how you're expected to behave. I'm not taking the biggest deal. I'm here for more hours than I would be at any other team, but this is why we win. So they've definitely probably aged out, but I think Belichick will coach again. So, you know, that's going to be the interesting things to see where he goes. I guess with Pete Carroll, if he now is just shifting to a front office position with the Seahawks, that's the end of his coaching career. But I think Belichick will likely end up somewhere. The strongest links at the moment are with, him going to the Atlanta Falcons, which is an interesting one for me because that's still a full rebuild, a winnable division, but a full rebuild. Yeah. I don't know why that's the most attractive position. I mean, I would have thought that the most attractive position is the Chargers just because, you know, I'm not the, you have a much higher opinion of Justin Herbert than I do, but no matter what, you have to think that Justin Herbert is like, a a quarterback capable of winning a Super Bowl that you don't have, you at least don't have to address the quarterback position for now. And when you're as old as Belichick is, you'd think, I mean, he, even if you're being optimistic, he has maybe 
let's say four seasons of coaching left. 40? So four. <laughs> four. So, you know, Herbert seems kind of perfect because you're getting a player moving more towards their prime, who knows how the NFL works, who you can help to get better, but you're not starting from scratch. Whereas even if you have a land in a place with a talented rookie quarterback or second year quarterback, you know, you you think you're three years out from being a legitimate Super Bowl contender, even if everything went really well. So yeah, yeah he can chase the re- the wins record, which I guess is probably his focus in some respects. And maybe an easy division makes that more attractive. But yeah, you'd think I'd like it if he ended up at the Chargers. Because in a sense like if he goes to the Chargers and they w- turned into a really good team, he does make the Brady Belichick debate interesting. If he just goes to the Falcons and gets a couple of playoff appearances by winning a, a mediocre division, eliminated in the wild card weekend, I don't think it really advances his argument much. Who do you think is the better QB, Brady or Herbert? Oh, come on. <laughs> I think Brady would be better with his left hand than <laughs> Herbert is as a quarterback. So I lastly, just touching on the, the Nick Saban, uh, I saw an interesting little post about uh, the NFL players that Saban has produced. Uh, this is just, I'm pretty sure just at Alabama, but um, so here's some of the, the lists. You tell me what position to you is the most uh, exciting or dominant QBs. Jalen Hurts, Tua, Bryce Young, Mac Jones. Obviously all recent, but those are the the most successful. Running backs, Derrick Henry, Josh Jacobs, Najee Harris, Jameer Gibbs, Mark Ingram, Eddie Lacy, Trent Richardson. Wide receivers, Julio Jones, Amari Cooper, Devonta Smith, Jalen Waddell, Jerry Judy, Calvin Ridley. Defense, Minka Fitzpatrick, Patrick Sertain, the second, Trayvon Diggs, Marlon Humphrey, Quinnen Williams, Will Anderson Jr., Donta Hightower. I think it's probably the running backs that stand out the most. Yeah. Because, A, you have running backs on that list who you could legitimately argue were the best running back in the league for you know substantial periods of time, and also who managed to stand out in an era when running backs don't stand out anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. It's a solid list of running backs. And you know what? They're all like almost all of them are monsters. <laughs> yeah. No, he definitely recruited a certain type of running back. Those are but, scary big dudes. <laughs> yeah. Now, I guess connecting that in the mentioning uh, Derrick Henry, connecting uh, Nick Saban to one of the other NFL co- head coaches who's lost his job since we last spoke, Vrabel. This is the most surprising, I suppose, of all of them. Vrabel being fired as the head coach of the Tennessee Titans. I was extremely surprised at this. Yeah. Yeah. This one, this is to me, like, you know, we talk a lot about a a team. I think nowadays needs, like we've said now a few podcasts, at least an above average quarterback to win. I'd say, you know, have to be in the top 15, maybe even top 10. But I think the, the, the number two on that list is then, a competent head coach. Like you have to have a top 10 or 15 head coach. I mean, we look at some of these head coaches that have good teams. I mean, I understand I'm, I'm picking Herbert cause I love Herbert, but Herbert is in the top 15 of quarterbacks. But then when you look at Staley, he's an absolute moron of a coach and that team just cannot win games. They can't like get out, out of the way themselves. Like you have to have those two. And the Titans had 
Vrabel. I think he is a good coach. And they just haven't had the quarterback lately. I mean, Tannehill has been injured, you know, kind of never lived up to that contract that he had. And then you have Will Levis, who's a who's a rookie who is what, the fourth rookie picked out of that draft? Like you can't expect him to come in and be CJ Stroud, he was never supposed to be CJ Stroud coming in this early. So, like, I think it's very unfair for Vrabel to not have that great of a team, like relying on literally Derrick Henry in an NFL where running the ball isn't really done very much anymore. Yeah. And I think you could be most critical with the Titans of their some of their front office decisions that they've made, like getting rid of AJ Brown, right? You know, there's Hopkins. yeah, they've they've made life difficult for Vrabel as well in terms of how they've there's some of the recruitment and drafting and trades now. You never know how involved he necessarily is in those in terms of if he gets if he signed off on all of those, if he could have vetoed them, but certainly not the smartest decisions. And yeah, I mean I agree with you. I don't I cannot imagine a scenario where the Titans have a better head coach next year than they had this year. No. Like I mean, maybe if you told me Bill Belichick becomes the <laughs> Titans head coach that I'm, but you know, they're not that far removed from being a legitimate Super Bowl contender. Yeah. So, although I will say, I mean, maybe it's better off for him because now Derrick Henry is going to be leaving that team. And you look at an offense now where you have Will Levis is your star. I mean, that's, that's not encouraging if you're a Titans fan right now, I don't know where you're getting points. No, things could get ugly for the Titans for a couple of years. So, so maybe so, he's dodging a bullet. <laughs> depending on where he ends up, yeah. I mean, again, if it goes back to him, for, you'd think the natural landing spot, if you were the Patriots, and there was a lot of speculation, right, that this could have almost motivated them to part ways with Belichick. He's a former player. He started his coaching career in New England. You would have thought it makes perfect sense for them to then bring Vrabel back to the Patriots and to have an experienced NFL head coach is relatively young still who they could sort of start that next long process with. But then speculation is that they're going to have an, kind of go the internal appointment route, which is kind of baffling. We spoke about it off podcast, but which is it's uh, not as for those if, who haven't heard, it's Jared Mayo, the current yeah. linebacker coach for the Patriots yeah. and former player who's been with them for a couple of seasons since as a coach. Yeah. Uh, but given the history of former Belichick coaches going elsewhere to become head coaches, Vrabel is kind of the only success story. Only one. So <laughs> it's sort of strange to then think this time around it will be different. And on top of it, we want to go from the most experienced head coach in the NFL to arguably the least experienced. I mean, well, I guess we'll have to see who gets hired elsewhere. But most NFL head coaches have at least had you know, coordinator positions prior to their appointment. So, you know, you really are gambling on the fact that he can be a success. And when you have Rabel sitting there, it seems pretty stunning in many ways. But who knows? All right, Eddie. I was going to give you the uh, stats of the other coaches in Belichick's tree uh, that have gone on to be head coaches I don't know if this is correct though because Vrabel isn't on this list 
Oh, because I don't know if Vrabel was technically an assistant. Yeah. Wasn't he like a linebacker's coach? Yeah. Okay. So it's probably that's what it is. So these are assistants who worked under Belichick. There's 10 of them. How many do you think had a winning season as a head coach? Oh, I I can't I can't even think of all ten. I I if I had, play it safe, I'd almost say zero. Or career career record above five hundred. Zero. Two. Okay. Al Groh, who went nine and seven with one season as the Jets in two thousand, <laughs> and Bill O'Brien, who was uh, fifty two and forty eight before he was fired by the Texans. So just scraped in. Yep. So overall, the cumulative record is two nineteen and three oh six and two over uh, thirty six seasons. Only six playoff appearances and three postseason wins. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, it's fair to it is true that most of them have gone to pretty bad teams. So there is that. You know, it's not like someone has left the Patriots to become the head coach of a like a Super Bowl contender. But it's it's and then the coaches for those wondering it's Grow, Cannell, Cornell, Judge, Patricia, McDaniel's, O'Brien, Mangini, uh, Nick Saban, Brian Flores, and Brian Dayball. Wow, that's quite a list of losers. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just saying some of those names this brings back memories of how bad they were. God, yeah, Mangini. Mean, <laughs> who's the most successful? I mean, obviously O'Brien from a from a record standpoint, but in the sense of who do you think was the best head coach? I mean, I guess Dable has a chance to. Yeah, we have to rule out Saban because. Yeah. Unless you're talking about NFL, NFL, NFL specifically, yeah. I, Flores kind of got that short stick in in Miami. I think he was a little unfairly fired. It's true. <laughs> yeah. I actually thought he was always a, a decent coach. And we'll see what the super, super kid, the, the wonderkind McDaniels can do in the playoffs here. But uh, yeah. No, different McDaniels. No, I know. I know. But I'm saying like Flores was fired as the Dolphins oh, coach to bring for, in for, McDaniel. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I guess with that as a little transition, we can move on then to our NFL wildcard weekend previews. I guess we'll go through the games in the order in which they will be played. Okay. So we will kick things off with... Actually, wait, before we start, Yeah. I have a little storyline within each game. So do you want me to give you all the storylines or as we go through each game, I can give you the storyline? As we game okay. by game, as we okay. get there. Oh, I actually have I have a quiz for you Ooh. before we start. There are. Can you name? Let me count. Oh. There are ten quarterbacks with ten plus playoff wins and twenty five plus playoff passing touchdowns. Can you name them? This is of all time. Okay, give it to me one more time. So with 10-plus playoff wins okay. and 25-plus, so tw- 10 or more playoff wins or 25 or more playoff passing. Touchdowns. Okay. Play- passing touchdowns, yeah. Ooh, okay, let's go Brady. Correct. Let's go Montana. Correct. I'll go Young as well. 
No. Did he make it? Steve Young didn't make it? Okay. Steve Young did not make it. Okay, let's go. So you there's there's 10 to get. I'll give you 13 guesses. <laughs> okay. You, you can get three wrong. Aaron Rodgers? Correct. How so many playoff three. wins does he have? Does it say? No, I don't have that, unfortunately. Oh, uh, okay. So you got three out of 10. I want to... Th- there's two recent ones I want to say, but I'm a little concerned in saying them. Oh, you, I have a lot of any, names. Do you want any clues? How many are from like the 90s so or earlier? I'll break this down really easily for you. Three are currently playing. Okay. Three are still currently playing. Three are still playing. Has Stafford had 10 wins? No. 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 Uh, so th- three are still playing. There no, are only. I, there I are think only... you're asking me this because one's going to be Flacco. No, I'm not. That's not why I'm asking you this. One okay. is Joe Flacco, though, but that's okay. not why. Okay. But so he's one of the currently playing. Three, <laughs> three are currently playing. Two, only two of them retired before the year 2000. And then, the, so the rest are all sort of fairly recent players. Okay. And obviously you have one of the pre-2000 retirements with Joe Montana. So you're only missing one player from kind of not our era. I'll put it that way. Okay. Uh, Eli? Not on the list. Big Ben? Is on the list. I knew one of those two would be on the list. Um, who's the other one currently playing that I'm missing? Oh, Mahomes. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes, yes. Is there still another player currently playing that I'm missing? Uh, no, you said Flacco, Mahomes. That's all I said. That's it. So you're missing one player who's currently playing. Well, I said Aaron Rodgers. Okay, then yeah, those are the three okay. active players. Okay. Um, so you're missing yeah. one pre-2000. Is that Johnny Unitas? No. And then you're missing... Uh, two our era quarterbacks. Drew Brees? No. Oh, Drew Brees doesn't have 10 playoff wins. I'm not going to start naming quarterbacks, but I feel like... You, you've, I mean, the fact that you haven't named one of these is pretty stunning. Oh, Peyton Manning. Yeah. <laughs> so you're missing two. One of them is on TV. The pre-2000s is a it's magic <laughs> oh, pre 2000 oh it could be pre 2000s could be phil sims uh i'll just start rattling off um aikman no although surprising actually Ooh, i would have bradshaw there you go you've, okay. you've got the so you are missing one retired player who retired in the 2000. I think I know what it is. Is it Brett Favre? It's Brett Favre. There you go. The thing is, I mean, I guess the the interesting thing, right, is Joe Flacco is the only weird name on that list. Yeah. How does Joe Flacco have 10 playoff wins? That that Ravens team was consistently pretty good. I guess maybe they had, what, three? That's a lot. They had, four, <laughs> they had four from their Super Bowl win, right? Because they they definitely came through the wild card that year, yeah. I think. 
So they had four from that season alone. And then they made the, you know, they had a few years where they lost to the Patriots in the AFC championship game. So, you know, he can, it's not too surprising, but it's this, the thing is then that's part of the reason. I mean, it means that Joe Flacco, is almost certainly going to be a hall of famer, right? Which is sort of strange. I think the crazy one is Steve Young doesn't have 25 touchdown passes because he has to have over 10 wins. For sure, he has over 10 wins. He, oh, he must be running the ball a lot. <laughs> yeah, not that many playoff touchdown passes. It's uh, it's true. Did I say, I mean, is, is Elway on the list? Did I say Elway? Elway is not on the list, no. No, there's a few surprising players who missed out. Although, oh no, LA is on the list. Sorry. Oh, okay. LA is on the list. Maybe you didn't. You Maybe did I name didn't say him. LA. Yes. Yeah, I counted wrong. But that kind LA. of came to mind too because I thought of yeah. like running QB with that epic run touchdown he has. In no, the there game. are a few players who are surprising, but I guess when you go back, you know, pre two thousand, getting to twenty five or more touchdown passes in the playoffs is is tough. So that would be the thing that's really holding some of these guys back. All right. What's the storyline then for the Browns Texans? Ah, that's the Deshaun Watson bowl for those who don't know, uh, which will not be featuring Deshaun Watson, but uh, in one of the probably most infamous trades potentially now uh, the Texans traded Deshaun Watson to the Browns. Uh, for a way to rebuild their franchise, uh, but surprisingly are already back in the playoffs with C.J. Stroud as a rookie QB. Whereas the Browns have ditched Deshaun Watson, or not ditched, but he's injured, uh, and have gone to Joe Flacco that we just mentioned. A pretty good storyline, I think. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's not quite... I think it's... Not quite as compelling as maybe you think it is. I think it's more just depressing if you're Watson. Like this has to be one of those weeks where. Do you think? Do you think Watson is really feeling depressed about this, Eddie? The guy's I, got over two hundred million guaranteed dollars. I think it still must be settling in a little bit, like that the his career because yeah, he's made he got that one big contract, but he would have expected to have multiple big contracts, right? And I think that might be gone. Like, I don't know how big of a contract he's going to get next time. And honestly, like he's, he's looking like he probably won't be a starting quarterback next season. Because I think if Joe Flacco wins a playoff game, then it's hard to imagine that the Browns do not just sign Flacco for next season. If they can afford it. <laughs> I'm sure they can figure out want a way to do it you know but i think that's the that's the and if speaking of eddie did you see we talked uh, a few weeks ago about uh teams playing paying players bonuses for sitting out and we discussed whether they could actually do that the browns did pay flacco the bonus he was supposed to get had he played in that last week 18 game so i guess you can pay out bonuses that players don't get. <laughs> well, they had to restructure his contract, though, to do it, right? I mean, yeah. that's the thing. is, So you can't just decide to pay it, but you can re-agree terms quickly so that the bonus is for something else. 
which, you know, in the world of NFL contracts, everything is just unnecessarily confusing. <laughs> but all right, Browns, Texans. What's the spread? The spread is the Browns minus two. So we have a, Any over a, road, a road favorite to kick things off. Road favorite. Which actually, I guess, you know, typically this is not a very watchable game, right? That first Saturday game usually is when the worst playoff matchups get, gets buried. And I would say, in a way, this might be the least interesting playoff matchup. But at the same time, it's a pretty good game. There are some nice, there are interesting storylines from both teams. Yeah. So this is a rematch from about three weeks ago. I think it was like week 14. And this was the, for those who are probably in fantasy football would remember, this is the Amari Cooper week where Amari Cooper went for 11 receptions for 265 yards and two TDs. The Browns won this game convincingly 36 to 22. However, the big caveat here is that David Mills was the starter for the Texans and not CJ Stroud. Yeah. So that's a pretty big change, obviously, in terms of what to think of in this game. The Browns come into this nice and refreshed, right? They rested most of their starters last week. So those little injuries that were maybe a slight concern for players like Miles Garrett, hopefully they should be fully recovered and raring to go. That gets into that rust versus rest debate that talking heads love to have. I don't really get how rust can kick in after two week, after one week off, but I'm sure that will be debated if the Browns go on to lose this game. Personally, for me, I just think this Browns defense is such a dominant force. I think that the Texans who will struggle. They obviously re- rely on those big plays that they're able to produce. And at times, C.J. Stroud, when plays break down, we saw it last week against the Colts, he has that kind of Mahomes factor a little bit where he can make something happen even when it looks like you've got a, you know, a sack or at worst an incompletion is coming and then suddenly it's a 20-yard gain. I just think he'll be under pressure pretty much the entire time. And then this Browns offense, this Texans defense is not exactly spectacular. And I think the Browns will be able to move the ball on them pretty effectively. So I think this is a really nice matchup, matchup for the Browns. And I expect them to win and to win actually by a relatively comfortable scoreline. I'd say seven plus points. So, yeah, I mean, the Browns have the number one ranked defense in yards against, um, but they do let up a lot of points. Uh, so since Joe Flacco has been the starter, I'll just run you through the games. They lost to the Rams and gave up 36 that game. They beat the Jags, but gave up 27. Beat the Bears, but gave up 17. Beat the Texans, but gave up 22 to Davis Mills and, and the Texans. And then beat the Jets, but gave up 20 against the Jets. And then Cincy will wash because that was you know a, a rest game. So their defense is good, but people can score on it. And I think this will, game will come down to like, can Joe Flacco just put up enough points to let his defense, you know, comfortably hold that lead? And, you know, I think if they can get over 23 points, they win this, no problem. But I do think the Texans will score above 20 points. Maybe. To go back into why I think it's a good matchup, though, and yeah, you've 
highlighted some of maybe the the slight weaknesses in this Browns defense. But the Texans give up pressure on nearly a quarter of the of CJ Stroud's dropback. It's twenty dropbacks. It's twenty four point three percent. It's the tenth most in the NFL. So they're not great at handling pressure or protecting CJ Stroud. He actually deals relatively well with it. It's one of the things that's made him a standout player this year. But in your first playoff game against one of the best pass rushes in the league, if he's under pressure consistently, it could get ugly for them pretty quickly. Like you are putting a lot of expectations on him to be able to stand up to pressure. And then you, if you want to be a real pessimist, right, you could throw in it also always opens up the X factor or the kind of potential element of CJ Stroud going into concussion protocol again. Not that you want to like have your prediction for this game be based on that fact, but I do think it's something you have to consider a team that gives up a lot of pressure against a team that's very good at creating pressure. You cannot overlook the possibility here that this is not a complete game for CJ Stroud. Ultimately, I agree with you. I think the Browns will win this. Uh, I, I, I think Flacco will have a good game. Uh, I think it'll be close, but I think two is, 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 is it's a fair spread. I think the Browns can cover that, you know, within a field goal. Uh, and the, oh, the 44, I think, I think over on that. I mean, the way that the Browns and it's maybe it's not so much the Browns defense isn't as good as the stats say, I still think they are a very dominant defense and miles Garrett is very scary, but you know, you talked about it. I think last podcast, the offense is different. Now they're not a run the ball, grind the clock out type of offense. They're a Joe Flacco, let them fly offense. So, you know, as Flacco throws the ball more and and they have more possessions, their defense also is going to have more times that they need to stop someone. So, you know, I think the higher number of points might just be indicative of them changing their offense a little bit and having less time of possession than they normally do. So um, I like the Browns and I kind of like the over here at 44. I think it's pretty low. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things to like about the Browns in this kind of Flacco era is they've sort of embraced the strengths of both side of their team on both sides of the ball, which is an ability of their defense to force turnovers and then their offense to score points, but they're happy to have turnovers on the other side of the ball at the same time. And the major question uh, coming into that game was Amari Cooper was questionable. Uh, and he has said, I think, since yesterday that he is playing. So not to worry. All right. We then move on to the second game, which is the Dolphins at the Chiefs. What is the storyline for this game? Storyline for this game, I think, is Tyree Kill. So Tyreek Hill, former star on the Chiefs, goes to the Dolphins, has a career year in, in receiving, while the Chiefs have a career low in wide receiver receiving. So um, what's going what's gonna to break here? Well, given the other big storyline surrounding this game, which is this is set to be the coldest game in NFL playoff history yes, based on current forecasts. The estimates are that it, the temperature will be as low as negative five. And I think with the wind chill factor. That's Fahrenheit saying, too. That's Fahrenheit, awesome. yeah. They are then expecting it to be as low as something like negative 12, negative 13 with the wind chill element. So this is going to be 
absolutely freezing. So with that in mind, I think in terms of what's going to give, that's obviously not a game that suits a open passing game and Tyreek Hill trying to explode. This could lead to the Chiefs maybe trying to, uh, the Chiefs, the Dolphins trying to be more creative in terms of how they use Tyreek Hill in motion and in the backfield. I think that's pretty likely. Now, I said that I thought I was going to pick this is my upset of the week. And that weather forecast has made me change my mind. Wow. You know what? As a fan of the Chiefs and Chiefs fandom, I don't think we want your pick, Eddie. We don't want your support. (laughs) Well, you're going to get it because you dig a little deeper than this Dolphins team, which already on paper doesn't feel like it's really built for cold weather games just because of how they're set up. Everything's about speed, about explosive That Miami life can't go to Kansas City in that cold. (laughs) No. And then Miami as, as a whole do not travel well in cold games. So if you look historically, they are the worst team in the NFL in cold weather games. They have lost 10 straight games where the kickoff temperature was 40 degrees or below. And they have lost those 10 games by an average of 17 points. Now, trying to factor in how sort of historically bad you are at handling, like the fact that they lost in 2012 in a cold weather game doesn't really impact what they're going to do this Saturday. But some of those games have occurred in the past couple of years under this coach with many of these players. So, you know... It is. It does look like they are probably not going to be suited to what this uh, setup is like. I think, I mean, the most recent cold game that they played in was last January. They played two cold games, both against the Bills, including their playoff loss last year when they lost 34-31 to the Bills. That was 27 degrees. They lost earlier... Um, and then they'd lost. Yeah. So, I mean that in a sense, you, if you're a Dolphins fan, you could put a positive spin on that. They probably should have won that game. They scored points. They moved the ball well, but yeah, I just think this is not a team built to play in the cold. And so I'm going to give the chiefs the edge and I'll take the chiefs to win and I'll take the chiefs to cover the spread. Yeah. So it is a, it is almost a slight disappointment. That's going to be so cold. I don't like when weather affects games. I want to see, you know, I always want to just want to see the best game. In the playoffs, I just want to see the team, how they're supposed to be in the best game. Don't like put them on like a rocky surface or like on a cliff and see what team can can do can run up an incline better. Like that's stupid. You know, like give me a, a neutral playing field. The fans fine. Like obviously home field advantage, you want that. But, you know, let the playing surface and the surroundings environment be optimal. But I don't think that, to me, is even the main factor in why I don't think the Dolphins can beat the Chiefs. I just think the Dolphins are so banged up right now that they come into this game very unfortunate not having a lot of their team, and especially their defense. They're missing their top three pass rushers. And if we know one thing about Mahomes, if you give him time, he will pick you apart. And especially this year, I think when he might need some more time because his receivers can't get open, uh, you know, right away. So I think that's a big loss for them. Also, their two starting safeties are both questionable right now and potentially might not be playing or might be limited. So now you're down like five of your defensive starters against a Chiefs team who 
are very comfortable in the playoffs. They've been here so many times. They're not going to be rattled. They're going to pick you apart when they can find weaknesses. Um, and then you go on the other side of the ball and you have, you know, Waddle's battling, battling an injury. Mostert, I don't think, is playing as well. So you have two of your best offensive players aren't playing. It's it, This is a very unfortunate situation for the Dolphins. It may be a little unfair even that they're coming into this season when everyone thought the big injury was going to be, does Tua make the season? But Tua is healthy and the rest of the team around him is not. So a little unfortunate. Uh, and I think that definitely sways my pick to the Chiefs. Combined with the weather and being at home, uh, the Chiefs are much more used to this scenario. So I'll pick the Chiefs here. Uh, again, you, I think you said the spread was three and a half now. The, the Chiefs are favored? Four and a half. Okay. Uh, and the over under 51. I could see the under actually happening. Uh, I, I know Miami loves to score the ball. But again, like you said, they're playing in a very cold environment that's not going to be uh, conducive to to that type of offense. And the Chiefs, everyone thinks the Chiefs are a great offense, but they don't score as much as this year for sure as they have in the past. So this could be a, a Chiefs defense, which has been a very good defense this year, could limit the Dolphins to 17 points and win 2017 in a low score. All right. Next game up, we have, I guess, the game maybe you're least interested in. The Steelers at the Bills. No, and no, Eddie, that's where you're wrong. Oh, because you really want to when, see the Because when Steelers. someone talks as much as I do about something, they need to see it happen. <laughs> well, I think you will see it happen. Obviously, the Steelers are the biggest underdog of the weekend. They are The Bills are favored by 10 points right now. Uh, I think that could be, I mean, we spoke about it on the last episode. I think that could be even higher by the time this game kicks off because I think people will just con convince themselves that there's sort of no way the Bills can lose. Um, what's the storyline of this game? This is a little tough of a storyline. I had to dig a little deep here, Eddie, but I'm going to give you that you might not be able to get one, but the storyline here is that Mike Tomlin and Sean McDermott were actually teammates in college at William & Mary playing football together. So they have a f potential friendship that goes back a long way. Okay. Yeah, that's sort of interesting. I'm sure that will get mentioned in the build-up to the game. Uh, I think the big thing to cover, obviously the Steelers, kind of historically bad from a playoff team perspective. We've covered it extensively over the course of the season, particularly you have in terms of their point differential and just how unconvincing they are even when they've played pretty well. Yeah. Things have improved slightly once they've made their latest change at the quarterback position. I think with Mason Rudolph, their offense has looked sort of more impressive wouldn't be the right word, but no, no, uh, more average, maybe competent. <laughs> yeah. More co competent is probably the right word. I, I only have one stat for you, but maybe you're going to give that stat now too. Go for it. The defining stat here, Eddie, the only one that everyone needs to know is one in 10 without TJ Watt and the Steelers will not have TJ Watt in this game. They let, allow 26 points per game without TJ Watt and have one win in seven, 11 games without him. And I, I, he is that much of a factor. Um, and especially, I think, when you are playing the Bills that have won their last four, right, to make it into the playoffs, it's you need TJ Watt. And without him, I think they're done. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I think all hope, if you were trying to be, now the spread is one a different thing because obviously double-digit spread in the playoffs is pretty high. I think if you were a Steelers fan, I don't saying all hope is lost, not quite, but the, the you know the the only way you could create a strong case for this Steelers team was that their defense was going to be sort of shut down, lights out, and missing their star player makes that significantly less likely. So. Yeah, I think it's hard to see how the Steelers could win this. As for the spread, I think I'll still take the Bills minus 10, but it's it is a big spread. Like it's hard it's easy to lose convincingly and still end up only losing by 8 or 9 points depending on, you know, if you if the Steelers sneak the last score of the game or something like that. So, I'll still take the Bills minus 10, but I'm less convinced about that element. Yeah, I'll take the Bills, and I'll take the Bills with the spread. Um, and they, they've won their last five. I, I apologize, not four. Um, and then they had the loss before that was the Eagles' loss in overtime that they probably should have won. So when you look back at at the Bills, while some people still will say, you know, these wins, they don't look convincing, and, you know, they don't look that great even though they're winning. I mean, when you go back, they lost to the Eagles in overtime, a game that I think almost everyone agrees they should have won. Then they beat Kansas City. In Kansas City, they thromped Dallas, then beat the Chargers, beat the Patriots, and then beat Miami at Miami. So, you know, that's three playoff teams that they beat and then one that they probably should have beat in the last six weeks. So that's a solid win record there. And I don't care how you're winning those games. They they won those, you know. So I think they are a lot better team than most people are going to give them credit for. And I think they're going to be a threat in the playoffs. So I definitely think they're going to come out here and win this game convincingly. My question is to you, if you are the Bills, what do you tell Josh Allen in regards to his playing style? Do you tell him, hey, listen, I think we're going to win this game. Let's stick to our game plan and have you sit back and throw it. Or do you let him loose this early in the, in the playoffs? I think you just keep doing the, as dumb as it sounds, you keep doing the things that you've been doing over the last five weeks. But you're because not concerned that you don't want to run that risk. No, I think I think once you get to the playoffs, right, you just put all of your cards on the table and you try and build some momentum and confidence. They've but this isn't significant- a playoff game. This is like This is like when that team comes over to give you practice before the real playoffs start. That's what this is. Yeah, you know, history has. There have been a few of those games in NFL Wild Card Weekend where teams have had their eyes firmly set on games to come, and then their next game is a preseason game the following season. So, you know, I've watched. You know, you think back on that Seahawks upset against the Saints, that Seahawks team with a losing record, where Marshawn Lynch had that. You know, the one of the most famous touchdowns in wildcard weekend history that was like an unbeatable saints team against a seahawks team who most were saying shouldn't have even been in the playoffs in in many ways very reminiscent of what we're about to see like a legitimate super bowl contender up against a team most people think we're lucky to even be there and i think one of those teams won that like quite convincingly in the end (laughs) so and that's probably why when we went through that list drew Brees doesn't have 10 playoff wins so you know, you can set your eyes too far ahead. So I think in particular, since they made the change with their offensive coordinator, the Bills have looked a lot better, but you still need to keep building that because it's only been a handful of weeks. So, you know, try and get some more confidence from the momentum so that you 
have something to build on going into more difficult challenges. So you brought up the underdog. Uh, so I have this, some statistics. So since 2017, underdogs are 20 and 10 against the spread in wild card games and 13, 13 wins, 17 losses outright. And at least one underdog has won outright in each season. Yeah, which is why I said, you know, you have to pick an underdog in a sense. It's why I wanted the Dolphins to be that underdog pick. I don't think I'm going to pick any other underdogs. No, come on. I I have my underdog pick. I think it's a pretty solid one. All right. But I don't think I do. But anyway, we'll see. But that, I guess, wraps up the uh, the Steelers-Bills discussion. Up next, first game on Sunday is the Packers of the Cowboys, and the Cowboys are seven and a half point favorites. So what's the big story in this one? Storyline here is also another coaching storyline, and that's Mike McCarthy. Coached the Packers to a Super Bowl victory 10 years ago now and is now welcoming that team who ditched him to the Cowboys to face his current team. And and I think overall, the other storyline here is just Packers-Cowboys is a is a genuinely good rivalry. Uh, historically, uh, and McCarthy has beaten them twice now in the postseason as a Cowboys coach. Yeah, um, this is kind of an interesting one, right? you got Dak Prescott with a lot to prove in this playoff run to try and establish himself really as an elite quarterback with Jordan Love. This is then a case of trying to further his you know, development and convince people, I suppose, that he is a the future of the Green Bay Packers uh, at quarter at the quarterback position. You throw in the fact that the Cowboys are just statistically and from an eye test perspective better in pretty much every area. Then there's some pretty bad matchups in terms of how the Packers might be able to contain someone like C.D. Lamb, for example. They weren't able to do it last time around. It's difficult to imagine how they can do it this time around, seeing he's been pretty much unstoppable for the past few weeks. And then also the Cowboys are semi-unbeatable at home, right? I mean, this is, what, 16 or 17 wins in a row. They've got the longest home winning streak in the NFL. Um, Yeah, I'm going to pick the Cowboys to win and the Cowboys to cover. Yeah, I'm going to pick the Cowboys to win. The the cover is tricky. The Packers, they're flying high right now, that offense. Uh, so you know the Cowboys, they're going to come out and they're going to throw the ball and they're they're going to look to run up the score. But I think the Packers can stay with them. They are not afraid to to throw the deep shot, to just keep going. Uh, Jordan Love can get 40, 50 attempts a game. They're, they're not afraid to do that. Uh, this is a little different, I think, than usually most people think the Packers love to set up that run game and then you know have Aaron Rodgers pick it apart with play action. This is a little different now. So... The spread is tough. Seven and a half is tough. It's you know it's kind of technically still a one score game, but a little over your traditional one score game. Um, I'll pick the Cowboys to win. I'll pick the Cowboys to cover. I do have a, a an in pick trivia for you though, Eddie. This is the only little trivia I had for you. Can you name this year the top two quarterbacks with passing touchdowns? Uh, what do you mean? Is it with the most passing touchdowns? Yes. Uh, the most passing touchdowns in the NFL. Can you name the top two? Uh, Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott, number one. 
And I, I mean, I, in a sense, you're kind of tempting me to now say it's somehow Jordan Love, but I'll say Tua as the number as the second option. Jordan Love, number two. So Dak has 36, Jordan Love has 32, Brock Purdy is in third with 31. So expect the TD passes to fly. Yeah, maybe. All right, up next, I'm assuming this is the game where you are predicting your upset because we have the Rams, three-point underdogs at the Lions. What's the, I think everyone knows it by now, but what's the main storyline heading into this the game? Main, the main storyline, I think everyone does know, Stafford returning to Detroit, winning a Super Bowl, coming back to face his old team that he was traded for three years ago this month. Um, but I think you can equally say this is Jared Goff playing a home game against the team that said he would not be able to win them a Super Bowl. So uh, a little bit of revenge on his side there. Yeah, I think it's really different. For Stafford, this is kind of a nice return home. He had a very long career with the Lions, and then he was sort of allowed to leave to go and try and achieve success elsewhere. Did Whereas you it was see, really a vote of no it. confidence in, in Jared Goff. Yeah, I was going to say, before you got to the Jared Goff no confidence, did you see that they were questioning whether they should do something for Stafford upon his return? <laughs> Like, are you kidding me? I get it. But like, no, I'm sorry. This is playoffs. <laughs> well, I've got one good, really good stat heading into this game. This is the longest gap between two teams playing against each other in the playoffs in NFL history. So they've only played each other once before in the postseason, and that was in 1952. So that means that this is a 71-year gap between when they last played in the playoffs. So going to be difficult to uh, try and use that as any kind of indicator of what the outcome will be in this game. But just in case you like to see historical playoff matchups as a as a as you know some kind of influence, the Rams lost that game 31 to 21. So history is on the side of the Lions oh, when it comes to these two teams. <laughs> Um, but in a sense, right, this is this is an interesting matchup because it's two of the most explosive offenses in the NFL, uh, two top five red zone offenses. And then you'd think that the differentiator, in a sense, would be the fact that this Lions team has a better defense. Uh they aren't great up against the pass, which is a concern up against this Rams team, which kind of leans very heavily on pass attempts. But they pretty much shut down the run. So the third best in terms of yards per, uh, in terms of actual carry, second fewest rushing yards. I'm torn. So I'll let you make your pick first. Obviously, it seems like you're going to be picking the Rams, but I'm a little bit torn here. Yeah, I'm going to pick the Rams. Uh, and so I'm going to go to – I'm pick, I'm hesitating in picking the Rams because it's not that I don't think the Lions are a legitimately good team. I do think they are a good team. But I think that Sam Laporta injury is going to really come back to haunt them. Uh, he was so dynamic in that offense, and especially the last five or six weeks of that season, he was just being featured more and more, and to the point where defenses kind of had to start knowing where he was on the field at all times, you know, kind of reaching that 
uh, that like Kelsey level of, you know, we got to keep an eye on this guy at all times. And that is such a huge loss for them. It really opens up that offense, you know, and gives Amon Ron St. Brown the opportunity to go deep up top and, and to have that running game with Jameer Gibbs is really kick it off. But the Rams offense right now is just, it's, it's so much better than it was at the beginning of the year. You know, you have Stafford who you can trust. I think you can trust Stafford as your QB. You have Kyron Williams, who's who's been great at running back this year. And then you have Nakua and Cup, who will be, you know, rested. Uh, so you have two great receivers there. That's a solid, solid four on your offense. So for me, you know, I, I think I'm going to have to go the Rams here. Like we said, there's going to be an upset. And I think if I had to ch- if I have to choose, which I am, this this is going to be the upset that I think is the most likely. And if you go to two games, I want to highlight you had the Lions loss to the doubt to the Cowboys in that quite controversial game that everyone talks about. And I think that is an indication to me that they are a legitimate team because I do think the Cowboys are that upper tier, you know, in the NFC, they're the second best team in the NFC and to stick with them and, you know, whatever, another dumb play away from winning that game. But the other game that people forget about is the Rams took the Ravens to the, to overtime about five weeks ago. And, you know, that could be one of the better, games the Rams have ever one of the better teams the Rams have ever played against you know when you look at what the Rams have done to finish off this season so people who are gonna poke holes in the Rams and say oh who'd they beat the Giants the Saints the Commanders you know they're they're not having a great schedule well they took the Ravens to overtime and you know they had that weird was it the punt return right is how they lost that game a punt return in overtime so that's a good game and that's a good game to have on your resume. So I'm not worried about the Rams not having won quality games. No, I think that's legitimate. And this is the one of the tougher games to call. But coming into this, Matthew Stafford and Jared Goff both have 24 wins since they were traded, which is kind of remarkable. And that's cool. I'm going to give... Tell me they have the exact same yards. Start to really <laughs> blow my mind, Eddie. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. And I am going to give the now, but if you wanted to have the slight tiebreaker, slight tiebreaker in that matchup, uh, Golf has more starts, obviously, because Stafford had some injury issues. So Stafford is twenty four and seventeen. Golf is twenty four, twenty three, and one. He does have a tie. So I guess technically, you know, you could maybe say he's got a slight edge. You could give him twenty four and a half, but with a with a lower winning percentage. I'm going to say that. Goff sneaks ahead in this one. I'm going to back the the Lions to to win their first playoff game in a long time and to cover as well. And wrapping things up, we then have Monday night football. The do Eagles you like are, this? Do I like do that you it's like on a Monday, Monday night? night game? No. Where would I you mean, like this game? Would you like it three Saturday, three Sunday, or two Saturday, four Sunday? I'd probably rather have three Saturday, three Sunday. And if really, really ruin that weekend, <laughs> if you could really talk me into it, I'd almost rather have a Friday night game than the Monday night. But I understand that for recovery reasons, that would be a little bit tough. Although I yeah. guess you could spin it the other way, which is if you win the Friday night game, you have a minimum of eight days off. So you could try and kind of think of it that way. But I don't love it. I feel like. It's wild card weekend. The weekend is over, and then you have this one game left. Uh, and the Monday just doesn't feel like a playoff day for me. But the final day, 
final day of the wildcard weekend, Eagles at Buccaneers, and the Eagles are three-point favorites. What is the storyline of this game? We call this the Lincoln-Riley Bowl. Baker Mayfield versus Jalen Hurts, two former Oklahoma quarterbacks. Only two years apart separating them, which seems like it should be further away, but they actually uh, are pretty close in, in when they were at Oklahoma running that offense. Well, this is a tough one. We kind of discussed it a little bit on the last episode. You obviously have an Eagles team pretty much in free fall. All the things that they were doing well earlier in the season or last year when they obviously made the Super Bowl, they seem to not really be able to do. Uh, their offense just consistently stalling. Their defense giving up long drives, big plays, basically can't stop the run at this point. But on the other side of things, you have a Tampa Bay Buccaneers team that's not great, uh, that has a injured quarterback. I mean, definitely isn't going to be playing this game at 100%. So in a sense, like the stats... I'm sure you'll have a few interesting ones, but I just, this all boils down to me just on the kind of the eye test and trusting the quality of the Eagles to eventually shine through here. So I'm going to take the Eagles to win and to cover. I'd be very surprised if they lost this. And I think if they lose this, they should fire Sirianni because I think if they lose this, this just means that something is very rotten within their team. And the only thing you can do is get rid of the head coach at that point. Yeah, this is a tough one. I, 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 I genuinely don't know what to pick here. The Eagles are in free fall, lost five out of their last six to not even so great teams. You know, And their only win is against the Giants, which I think you'll say is a close game, and you almost predicted the double Giant loss. Um, whereas the Bucks, they're winning, but winning is, is almost an asterisk when you win – nine nothing off of three field goals to the worst team in the nfl the carolina panthers and then you know lose to the saints the week before but they beat the jags they they beat the packers and they put up points and they're not afraid to throw the deep ball and i think that could come back to haunt the eagles here the eagles pass rush is not what it was last year so quarterbacks are getting more time to throw the ball against the eagles and the eagles have faced the most wide receiver targets and receptions and allowed the second most wide receiver yards and touchdowns in the NFL this year. So they rank bottom five in receptions, touchdowns uh, allowed to perimeter wide receivers and bottom five in targets and touchdowns allowed to deep passes. So why am I saying perimeter receivers and deep passes? Because if there's one thing the Bucks have, it's Mike Evans <laughs> and he is a deep threat perimeter receiver. Uh, so, Led the league in touchdown catches, third in receiving yards on deep passes. Uh, they're going to go to him, and they know that they're going to have to go to him to win that game. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see some big numbers from Mike Evans and maybe even one, two touchdown from Mike Evans. But ultimately, I do think the Eagles are the better team. Baker, as you said, did not look healthy last week. And I just have to think that the team that was in the Super Bowl last year can beat this Bucks team that is not very good. Yeah, this, this, is, one... this is the ultimate. The, the Eagles have lucked out this week with, I think, the only team that they probably could have beaten in the, in the NFC and maybe in the playoffs, 
maybe Steelers without TJ Watt, I think, you know, is makes them pretty weak there. But any other team, and I would have picked against the Eagles here. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, but yeah, I think they should be just a little too good for this Bucks team. And but you know, if you follow the trends, then I guess you'd expect the Bucks to win this. But I just can't. At some moment in time, they've got to right the ship. I don't know if you saw there were some conspiracy theories going around that the Eagles have been losing intentionally because they're planning on unveiling some different defensive and offensive schemes in the oh playoffs. And so that they wanted to keep all of that concealed so that they could kind of basically look like a completely different team in the playoffs. I think if you believe that, you'll believe pretty much anything. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, I guess. But yeah, that wraps up the uh, wildcard weekend preview and predictions. Any other? Yeah. See the Premier League is back in action this weekend. The couple decent matches. It's the it's the winter break in the Premier League. So unlike some other leagues, they're not doing that by having a complete break. But each team is getting one weekend off. So half are playing this weekend and half are playing next weekend. Newcastle City is kind of the standout game this yeah. weekend. Uh, so it will be. Interesting to see what happens there. I did see Jordan Sancho is going back to where he... Uh, or or Jaden, you mean? Jaden, sorry. <laughs> I said Jordan. <laughs> I got Jordan Love on my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, back on loan to Borussia Dortmund, trying to revitalize his career by going yeah. back to where he played best. All right. Anything else to discuss? Yeah, I know we, we always discuss, you know, non-sports and, and do TV and movie. Um, I don't have much on that front. I have two little things that I want to bring up. The first is um, I mentioned that we went and saw uh, Godzilla Minus One, which is a very good movie. I've also been watching uh, Monarch Legacy of Monsters on Apple TV, which is based off of like the new version of Godzilla the American Godzilla um, where uh, people have seen like the new King Kong movie where they're tying it all together with these monsters that come from like this underground land. This show is actually not terrible. It's not great, um, but it's, it's a show I can put on when I'm on the elliptical and be entertained enough to, to not realize I'm exercising and watch it. The thing that they do that I, I genuinely like that I wish it's slightly difficult, but I wish for shows and things did is there's been a lot of heat lately for like aging and de-aging characters. So what they've done is they have two timelines, but one of the characters, the timeline for him in the early timeline is Wyatt Russell. And then the later timeline, it's his father, Kurt Russell. <laughs> so they're using the father son tandem as a way to have this, like be the same character, but different versions of them. They'd have a scene where they show like Wyatt Russell's face and then they fade and transition into Kurt Russell's face. It is amazing how similar they look when they did that. And I just love that idea of like, how can we do this without having those stupid de-aging effects and make it believable? Because it legitimately, they are very similar in the way they, like the way they talk, the way they move and the way they look. So I thought that was a great, great, great call by whoever put that together. <laughs> also a great move by the Russells, right? Cause that's a good way to try and get your son's acting career to take off a little bit more by sort of tying him to a, a superstar. Yeah. But 
Yeah. Professional hockey player he was before that. Professional loosely. He was playing in Europe, but um, <laughs> but I mean he was playing for like the, yeah. the high level German. It's still, impre- uh, it's still impressive. Yeah. And his father was a professional baseball player, Kurt Russell. So well, that's pretty Quite cool. The family. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so that was one I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, but the other thing is uh, big fan of Below Deck. It's like the one reality TV show I watch. Uh, I just like the the idea of like the the yacht and like what they do on the yacht and like the the chef on the yacht and the the, the people who run the deck and stuff. Halfway through this season, they brought in a young French guy. He's just like a very tall, goofy, very stereotypical French person. I have said since the first episode that this person reminds me of of podcast favorite Vasilis. Just his general attitude and demeanor is very Vasilis like. So for instance, I mean, when you work the deck, they work really long hours and he'll work for a little bit and he's, and then he'll just be like, Oh, can't we just get a break? I need to eat. I need to exercise. Like I just want to do some push ups and lay down. <laughs> like just everything he kind of does is very Vasilis. And then when it comes to like the women, it is amazing. <laughs> so this is one of the, he was getting very down, like he, like from charter to charter. And then it got to one where he's just like, guys, I'm going to quit. And they're like, what do you mean you're going to quit? Like, what's going on? He's like, oh, I just, I just don't feel happy anymore. He's like, I have to trust my body. And when my body tells me I'm not happy, then I'm not happy. And I need to do something else. And they're like, what do you mean you're not happy? He goes, you know, yesterday I woke up and uh, the, 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 the tour I fell, it was not up. And when I wake up and it's not standing, then that's my body telling me something's wrong. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, this is something Vasilis probably says to himself every day. <laughs> Possibly. You're right that that is very Vasilis-esque. The work ethic But it gets better. Much, Wait, it gets so. better. Hold on one sec. So then this is his reasoning for why he thinks he wants to leave because his body is telling him when he's not waking up with some excitement that it's, it's his body telling him. But then they get a new person on board who's a very attractive female too. And instantly he's like, oh, maybe I stay for a little bit more. (laughs) And then his demeanor within one day of talking to this girl completely changes. And he goes back the next day and he's like, I'm on board. I'll stay. <laughs> it was so classic. Like it's that is a classic Vasilis move. The one attractive girl enters the room and he's full in again. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can be on board with the Big Chill podcast endorsing reality TV, but I guess I'll have to have to let it slide. But for any of our listeners who do watch and you want to get a little feel of what Vasilis is kind of like, this is a character that that has some Vasilis traits to him. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't really have any non-sporting topics to mention this time around. So I guess that's really it for me. All right. I guess with that, we'll wrap it up and have a nice, exciting NFL wildcard weekend. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. Talk to you later. See you. See you.